BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, November 5th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hart. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Last year, I interviewed Oliver Uberti and James Cheshire about their book, Where the Animals Go, which was easily my favorite science book of the year, with stunning maps of animal migrations, from understanding how penguins dive and hunt below the Antarctic, to how albatross fly through the air, to understanding how baboons make their daily commute in the Congo. Well, this week, I'm back with an interview about my favorite science book of 2018, well, at least so far. And guess what? It's about maps again. Science journalists Greg Miller and Betsy Mason took their obsession with maps, historical, geologic, sciencey, even of other worlds, and translated that into one of the most beautiful and interesting compendium of stories I've ever read. The book is filled with over 200 maps, some famous like maps of the ocean floor, some obscure like a geologic map of the moon, which is easily one of the visually craziest maps I've ever seen. I fully admit it's weird to talk about an incredibly visual book in podcast form, but the stories behind the maps are just as interesting as the maps themselves, or at least they're close. And if you don't want to get a copy of the book, most of the maps are highlighted on their blog at National Geographic called All Over the Map. The book is also called All Over the Map, a cartographic odyssey, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Betsy Mason. Today's episode was sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Arrett founded Madison Reed. Named after her daughter, the company is on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. My wife is an avid user of Madison Reed. She loves how affordable it is, the salon quality coloring that she gets, and how easy it is to apply, and there's no mess, no fuss. You'll love the look that you create. It'll feel like you just came out of salon, but the reality is you had more me time to do what you love. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, 
on your schedule for under $25. Join the hundreds of thousands of women, including my wife, who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. Betsy Mason, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Where does this fascination with maps come from? You know, it's funny. When people hear that I've written a book about maps, they this is often the first question they ask me. And um, I, I was surprised to find that I didn't really have a great answer for this. And as I've reflected on it, I think it's because there's so many answers for it. There's not one reason that I'm fascinated with maps. But, you know, I think I would trace my real interest back to when I was a uh a geology student in college, and I learned how to make geological maps. And that was really a revelation because I started to see how maps could be more than just geographic references and uh, navigation aids, how they could reveal something else about the world, something that you couldn't otherwise see. So, you know, for instance, the geology beneath the landscape, but also more abstract things like poverty. Uh, so that really started to interest me. And then when we, when my co-author Greg and I started writing about maps for Wired about um, five years ago when we started a blog there, then my interest just continued to deepen because the more I learned about maps, the more amazing they are and the more great stories we found through them. And so I just love them more every day. Now, when we were talking about maps, just to give people a picture, this book is absolutely gorgeous and it is not Rand McNally style at all in terms of the kinds of maps you see. The maps range the gambit from geographical based maps to place based maps to uh, to ones like you said that like talk about uh, invisible hidden items within the context of the places they occur. There's ones that that are maps of non-earth locations. Um, it's sort of like a, a stunning spectrum. Uh, almost all of these maps are all historical in nature. They're real things. Can you talk about like a little bit about going and uncovering these maps? There isn't like some magical map database. It, it seems like a lot. Oftentimes you went into the bowels of different libraries to uncover them. <laughs> yeah, I wish there was a, a magical map resource. Um, I, you know, we discovered these in all different ways. We, um, we literally just browsed collections that are online and even offline at various libraries. And we talked to tons of curators and librarians and archivists and uh, map collectors and we talked to a lot of cartographers and geographers and other map experts, even map historians, and, you know, just asked them about the maps they like. And um, and then once we started writing about maps and people started to know us as, you know, those people who love maps, they started bringing interesting maps to us, started sharing stories that involve maps that they stumbled across. And so sometimes the stories, when we were lucky, would, would actually find us. I like that tagline, those people that love maps. That's a good blog tagline. Uh, well, let's talk about some maps. One of the ones that jumped off the page to me is this historical map of London uh, during World War II, which really uh, talks about the damage that is occurring in London 
as the bombs fall and and destroy whole parts of the city. Yeah, this this these maps. Uh, it's a huge collection of 110 maps that cover the entire well, what's sort of known as Inner London now, and. The amazing thing is that these maps were made literally as the bombs were falling. So there was a group of surveyors and architects who had been assigned to assess the damage. So as soon as a bomb would fall, they would race out to the scene, help with the rescue efforts, and then they would try to assess the, the damage to decide uh, you know, how long the rescuers could continue searching through rubble, if there was any chance that the building was going to collapse. Um, and they would sort of rate it whether whether it was just, you know, not structural damage or seriously damaged or damaged beyond repair or totally destroyed. And each of those has a color code in, um, that matches it. And so then they would take that information back to their headquarters and color in on uh, maps there all the different levels of damage. What you have are these seam uh, that show up off the blocks in all kinds of different colors. So it, it really shows some of the randomness of the, the, the bombing. And um, what's, what's also kind of strange about them is that they're really beautiful. They're, they're very colorful and they're just really interesting and they, they just grab your attention and contrasting that sort of um, appealing aspect of them with the information that they're meant to convey is, is sort of an odd it's totally unsettling looking at it because you're right. It is beautiful. It's this old kind of like map that's on this sort of yellowed parchment kind of style. and But there are these colors that pop off. And like you said, like what struck me is is a bit of the randomness because there'll be blocks where a big building is completely destroyed. And then next to it, the building next to it is mostly fine. And then the building right next to it is pretty much devastated. One of the things that I, I walk away with from that map that I never got from all these historical tales of London, because there are all these famous photographs and stories and movies about it, is just the extent of the devastation. It's only when you see that map that you get just how widespread this is. Uh, so when we hear about those sirens going off in the in the city at that time, I sort of like always wondered like what like how big of an area are we actually talking about? And this really gives you a visual landscape of it. Yeah, it also has uh, circles on it indicating where the V1 and V2 bombs hit. And, you know, the map, we have one complete map on uh, in the book, but there's more than 100 more of these. So if you can imagine that much destruction. And you're right, you just have these areas that have got yellow or orange indicating very light damage right next to buildings that are purple or black. And black is total destruction. Purple is damaged so badly that they're going to have to tear it down anyway. And it kind of explains the odd architectural mix that you see in London today. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you have these grand old Victorians right next to these sort of squat, square, more modern apartment buildings. And uh, these maps are available for people in London to look at. And lots of people who are interested in the history of their area will refer these maps, and they even still use them sometimes to determine if there might be unexploded ordnance in a place where they're going to try to do new construction. I'm going to stay in London for our next map, but shift us topically. We're going to move towards science, which is one of my favorite sections of this book. Really loyal listeners remember a long time ago, probably like four, 
four or five years now, uh, I interviewed Stephen Johnson about his book, uh, The Ghost Map, which is about the cholera outbreak in London at the time. And you have a really kind of haunting map of tracking the uh, cholera outbreak in the 19th century uh, in England. Yeah, the the map that uh, that he wrote about in in the ghost map is was by uh, a, a man named John Snow, and he's really become sort of a legend in cartography and in epidemiology because of this map that he made in 1854 of that outbreak in uh, the Soho district of London. So he was able to trace the outbreak to a single water pump on Broad Street just by mapping out where all the victims were and interviewing their families. And so the legend is that this was such an amazing discovery at the time that he was able to convince the the um, city to take the pump handle off and stop the outbreak and um, you know, epidemiology was forever changed. And while what he did is really, truly important, um, people did not really believe it at the time, and other scientists were not convinced. And actually, there were other people, um, in fact, other uh, physicians mapping cholera. And there was this one guy named Henry Wentworth Ackland who mapped an outbreak in Oxford that same year in 1854. And his map is far more detailed. He mapped out all sorts of things, um, including where all the victims were, but also he mapped out where there were places that contamination, either in the water or on land, places that had been cleaned up from their contamination, places where there was sewage being ejected directly into, into water, places where the drainage was poor. And so he mapped all these things out. And what he found was that there was a really striking correlation between where all the victims were and elevation. So there were far more victims in low-lying areas than in slightly elevated areas. And uh, scientists of the time really liked this a lot better than Jon Snow's map because this one matched the going theory at the time, which was that uh, disease was caused by foul odor or miasma. And so these low-lying areas were clearly where there was less wind to to bring in the fresh air. And so that his theory was that's why they were getting sick. What he failed to notice was that the people in the low-lying areas were getting their water from these contaminated rivers and other sources, and the people up higher on the hill were using well water. So while he found a very true correlation, he did not manage to get the causation right. I also love the fact that, I, and I don't remember this existing with the, the snow maps, he created a timeline, too, of the outbreak, right? Yeah, he was really thorough. He collected a lot of data. And so he mapped out, because he was interested in the elevation and the wind and everything, he wanted to see if there was also a correlation with weather and climate and those sorts of things. So he mapped out exactly when each of the deaths occurred in the year. And then he also added two other previous outbreaks in Oxford. And so he had a lot of data. And then he tried to match that up against all sorts of crazy things like, well, temperature and and wind, obvious things, pressure, but also thunder and lightning, days with hail, appearances of the northern lights. And not surprisingly, he was not able to find a really strong correlation with any of those, but he was not deterred. He was sure that as they were better able to collect meteorological data, that eventually they'd be able to find that connection. 
I'm going to move to something that's not geographic in basis, which is the brain. I know there's a lot of brain mapping efforts that exist uh, nowadays, but when you talk about brain maps, there's only one name that emerges, right? Well, I, you know, it depends. Come on. He's (laughs) He's the most famous one. I don't know if he's the most famous. He is very famous among uh, neuroscientists, and his maps are uh, among the oldest real maps of what's happening in the brain. And they're also, I think, the most beautiful. But um, so you're talking about the the Spanish scientist Santiago Ramon y Cajal. Yeah, I just I absolutely love his maps of the brain. They're beautiful. We should start with the beauty because oftentimes they're uh, shown in gallery spaces. Uh, I first saw his drawings in person at the MIT Museum in Cambridge. Uh, when they had an exhibit up of some of his work. And um, what strikes me about them and what has always struck me about about his drawings is how just incredibly uh, artistic they are, um, first and foremost, before you even delve into the, the neuroscience components. But why has he become such a favorite of neuroscientists? Uh, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, one is that the work that he did was was actually groundbreaking. I know people use that term a lot, but he, uh, and he won the Nobel prize for this, um, in 1906, but so he used a new stain that had been developed by another scientist named Camillo Golgi. And this, this stain they would use to put on very thin slices of the brain. And most of the stains that were available of the, at the time would just sort of cover, they'd color all the tissue in whatever color the stain was. And when you looked at it under a microscope, it was kind of hard to make anything out. Golgi's stain, for reasons that nobody understood, would only color some of the cells. And so because of this, uh, they were able to see individual neurons for the first time. So Cajal was looking at these under the microscope and just drawing everything that he saw. And he re- he really had an advantage because he had wanted to be an artist when he was young, but his father was a physician and really pushed him that direction. So he had a lot of natural talent for drawing. Um, and so he could see that there were a lot of different kinds of neurons, and he was trying to decipher uh, how they worked. And he made a major discovery by mapping out the cells in the retina, which is the thin layer of light-sensitive cells at the back of the eye. And he noticed that all the neurons have these sort of short, protruding, tentacle-looking things called dendrites. And then uh, they also have one sort of thicker, long one called an axon. And he saw that the dendrites of the neurons in the retina were pointed towards the photoreceptor cells, which are the cells that receive and are activated by the light when it enters your eye. And so the dendrites were pointing at the photoreceptors and the axons were pointing towards another layer of cells. And those dendrites were pointing towards the axons and then the axon was pointing towards another layer of cells. And then the the last set of axons goes out into another area of the brain called the thalamus. And so he deciphered that that's how information flows through neurons. And nobody knew that before. And it wouldn't be confirmed for, you know, 50 years until 50 years after he died, once there were microscopes powerful enough to see this. But one of the reasons that his, I think his, uh, his sketches are still used in classrooms today and are still really popular is because they're, they're so 
uh, I don't want to say simple, but they're so clear and um, they just really capture the essence of how information flows through the brain in a way that all these modern maps that have a lot of other kinds of information on them don't. And so they're very appealing for teaching uh, future neuroscientists. For sure. And I think one of the understated things I don't think I really ever noticed when I was looking at his drawings is is how he put arrows in the drawings to actually show the flow of information, the flow of electrical impulses. And I think you like get that dynamicism about his work, even though it's a real, it's a static image, you get this sense of flow, which is, I think, as most neuroscientists would say, that's what's sort of endearing here is he created a dynamic view of the brain um, in a flat image on the page. Yeah, it's 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 so neat because he took what he learned in the retina and he was able to apply that all over the brain and sort of decipher all these different neural circuits. And and you're right, he's got these um, I think endearing is a nice word for them, these little arrows with, uh, you know, with the feathers on the end pointing out the direction of flow. And so it, it, it really does make for uh it's just it's just easier to grasp what's happening in that part of the brain in these images than it is in a lot of the new ones you see today. Okay, we've gone from uh, World War II London um, to the 18th century London to maps of the brain. Um, why don't we go off planet? How do you feel about okay. that? <laughs> uh, because I was actually really this. Um, there's a few maps that are non-Earth-based. And I think they were the most surprising to me in the science section of the book. Um, and you mentioned that, that the Mars Canals one was, was really interesting to you. And I kind of thought they were out of science fiction when I first like looked at the image before I read any of the text. Tell us about the, the Mars Canals map. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, a lot of people have heard uh, that there was that idea that there were sort of Martian made canals on Mars um, back, back in the early 20th century. But um, the idea actually goes much further back to when we were first able to see Mars through telescopes. But really what the astronomers could see was sort of light and dark patches. And when they map those out, um, at some point, I think it was maybe 1870, um, a British astronomer named Richard Proctor um, mapped those out and named the light areas continents and the dark areas seas. And it, it's it's very intuitive to think of the of the the light and dark that way because it's similar to Earth. And and this sort of got carried uh, along by uh, various astronomers. Um, and then one in particular, uh, Giovanni Schiaparelli. He started mapping Mars in the 1870s, and he had a lot. He he had a lot more detail on his, and so he had more waterways breaking up the continents. And then, as the years went by, these waterways got a little bit straighter as he could see better. And by the 1890s, the maps that he made don't really look natural. It's really easy to see why people were like, what is going on here? This couldn't possibly be natural. And so it, it was, you know, it was very easy to say, oh, maybe those are artificial. And then this was compounded by a translation error, or I guess not exactly an error, but in uh, Schiaparelli used the word, the Italian word canali to describe these lines, which means channels. Oh, which makes sense in the context of what we know about Mars now. But I can understand that being translated very differently. 
Yeah. So in Italian, it could mean either, you know, sort of man-made canal type things, but also natural channels. And if you read some of the things that Schiaparelli was writing around that time, it's clear that he really thought that it was perfectly fine to explain these as natural channels and did not think that there needed to be an artificial explanation. But when you translate it into English, and it, it, it came out as canals, which are artificial waterways by definition. And so people really picked up on that. And one man in particular, uh, an American astronomer, Percival Lowell, uh, took this idea and championed it and, and, and really ran away with it. He, in fact, even built an uh, observatory that is in um, Arizona, partly to continue his observations of Mars. And the maps that he made of Mars are really impressive. Um, they've got like over 200 canals, each with a name on them. And he was really convinced that these were artificial uh, waterways. Um, and he continued. So he pushed the idea of, of intelligent life on Mars as a result of this mistranslation? Well, people had been speculating about that before uh, Schiaparelli's and the Canali, but that's when it really took off, um, was when Lowell picked up on Schiaparelli's work. And, and, and I think the English translation of canals helped that along. But like I said, the lines are very straight, so it's not a huge leap to think there's something weird going on here. But yeah, uh, these early maps and that uh, translation error are pretty much what led to the War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938. That was, you know, largely based on Lowell's uh, work. And, you know, he was doing a lot of public speaking and the public loved this idea. Uh, and it and it really was easy to believe because of the way these lines were all over the all over that planet. They just didn't look natural. Scientists were not uh, buying it by, by the early 20th century, and it had pretty much been debunked, but he kept with it. And, uh, you know, then we had the War of the Worlds broadcast, which actually didn't cause quite the hysteria that, uh, that people, I think, tend to believe, but certainly did fool a few people. It's a better story to believe than it really did. It's a much better story. I know I almost didn't want to say that, but I've, I feel like I have to as a journalist. <laughs> There's not a lot of evidence for, for mass hysteria. I love the concluding thought, though, which is that that we didn't really put this to rest until the Mariner spacecraft actually went by and sent back images in the 80s that really showed what these canals look like in a, in a much more uh, defined way. Yeah, and and you know most of them aren't there, but um, yeah, the ones that are there, you can you can get a better picture. But there were actually some of Lowell's disciples who didn't let go of it even then. They you know they admitted, well, this doesn't look exactly like we thought it did, but they weren't willing to rule out the artificial possibility until later. But what's interesting is that the map that was made for the Air Force uh, in the early stages of planning the Mariner flyby missions still has these canals on it. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Even though it's like 1970, like 1980 when those maps came out, right? Uh, those maps are from 1960, early 1960s. Oh, still. But, point, yeah. point still stands that that is <laughs> crazy. Yeah, the idea had long since been debunked, but the man who made the map was um, was one of the people who had worked with Lowell at the observatory. So uh, they're still on there. You know, what I love about this story is um, it's sort of like the hidden truth behind it is that these maps um, off, and a lot of the maps you show are really sort of personal 
journeys as much as they are about the information they show. And so in this case, it just sort of shows this progression of information that starts with observation and then goes off in these wild, wild directions from them. Um, and so I always, you know, I'm used to the Rand McMally style maps, like maps are just another way of telling the truth about the world. And I love how this kind of explodes that concept. Maps have their own kind of bias to them, too. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, the, no map is a, a true representation of the world. I mean, you just start with the fact that the world is round. And when you flatten it onto two dimensions, you're going to distort something for sure. But but you're right. The personal journey part of it, I think, is part of what has gotten me so excited about maps in these past few years is they're just such an interesting way to look at different time periods and look at di- through different people's eyes at things. And uh, we've just found that they're such a great vehicle for finding stories. I'm sure you get to ask this a lot, but I'm going to do it anyways. Do you have a favorite? Is that a even a thing when you have a catalog of maps that exist or cost so many different domains? No, I, you know, I've I've tried to prepare for this question too with with the doing the talks at bookstores and and various places, and yeah, that's really tough. I mean, I have a lot of favorites, but the one that I think was at the top of my list when we decided we were going to write the book, and I basically said I'm not writing a book if this map's not in it, is uh, this map of the world ocean floor that was made by Marie Tharp. Um, one of the rare female cartographers of the time. She was actually a geologist too. And her colleague, Bruce Hazen, and painted by this wonderful Austrian landscape artist named Heinrich Baran. And it's just such a beautiful map. We put the, it's the only map that we have filling an entire two-page spread. And uh, it's just stunning. And like a lot of these maps that we have that touch on science, this one, um, you know, definitely has a place in the history of science. And it it helped what she found by mapping out the uh, mid-ocean ridges that you see all along the ocean floor, helped convince the scientists in the United States who were resistant to the idea of plate tectonics. Um, it, helped, it helped bring them on board with the fact that uh, this was possible and probable and eventually that it was true. And this map is is really famous in scientific circles. In the, um, and you're right, it's stunning because we're used to seeing the ocean shown as just either flat blue or just sort of shades of blue that show depth, but don't show what's happening underneath the surface. And when you see sort of, I mean, the scarring, the mountainous regions, it's re- also just really clear seeing sort of the, the faults um, that exist at the boundaries of some of these ocean areas. It's really stunning seeing the the amount of texture that exists once you sort of take away the water. Yeah. And, and what's cool about this map is that it's really the first time that, um, or, you know, the maps that preceded this map, this is sort of their piece de resistance at the end of all their work. But um, in the 1950s and 60s, they were making these maps that were they're called physiographic diagrams, and it's just this sort of way of drawing little um, three-dimensional representational um, features. And so, when they put that on the on the um, you know the entire Atlantic, for example, it was really the first time that people could 
actually visualize what the ocean floor looked like. And um, before that, yeah, people not only did maps uh, portray the ocean as a a flat, featureless plain, but that's pretty much what most people thought uh, that it was. And this map, like you said, is famous among uh, in scientific circles. I don't think you can go to an oceanography department in the world without it hanging on the wall. But I think it also appeals to regular people because it's so intuitive. It's so uh, easy to understand what the ocean floor actually looks like. So this book has almost a couple hundred maps in it. It's probably 150 or so maps in it. It's uh, a little over 200 individual maps, but there's 300 images. So there's lots of other stuff in here too. And you probably sifted through thousands of of different maps just to edit down to these couple hundred. Uh, Is there still just like, is this scratching the surface of what's out there in terms of interesting maps that tell stories much beyond what we see on that page? Oh, I'm sure. I, you know, we we be, continue to discover stories that we were trying to squeeze into the book to the very last, and and we're still finding new ones. Um, you know, certainly we could fill another entire book like this. So, it it wasn't it wasn't easy to choose uh, and and to have to leave some out. But we really tried to focus on maps that are not just interesting to look at, but have something more to offer. That have a story of some sort. You know, that ha- that have something interesting about the person who made them or uh, or they affected history in some way, or uh, they reveal something that you wouldn't be able to see any other way. So uh, there's just a huge range of stories in here because that was really one of our main criteria for which maps to include. Hey, I was happy seeing the Death Star schematics in this. That's the fr- I think that was the first time I actually saw that schematic drawing. And yeah, I've been a Star Wars fan forever. Any of the movies, it, it's not. It, it was that was maybe the hardest one for us to acquire. We had to negotiate with Lucasfilm, and um, <laughs> it was not easy. But we're pleased to have it. Well, Betsy Mason, thank you for sharing all these incredible maps, and I highly encourage everyone to uh, go check out the book. Oh, thanks so much! I always enjoy talking about maps, and I really enjoyed this. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chan, and Sean Johnson. Visit us at inquiring.show. Support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Find us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or your favorite map. Just don't send one of those Rand McNally ones to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indra will be back next week. See you then. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.